Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. We'll be talking to Jennifer Stein in just a moment. I want to set a little bit of this up. A couple weeks ago, I had on um, Mike Rogers, who gave me one perspective on the Travis Walton case and a suggestion that... um, my, my Walt Rogers, that it may have been a hoax, it may not have been a hoax. Um, he was all over the board. And then I had on Robert Schaefer to talk a little bit about this, because one of the accusations that had been made was that Philip Klass had solicited Stephen Pierce, suggesting that if Pierce would admit it was a hoax, Klass would pay him $10,000. And there's some discrepancy about exactly what that said. And I'm in possession of some documents, um, the transcripts of the telephone calls between Pierce and class and that sort of thing. So we'll discuss that. And we'll get a little bit more in depth into the Travis Walton case and some things in a video that Jan has done called Travis, which is a documentary on Travis Walton, of course. So I will tell you that the guest is Jennifer Stein. She is best known for her award-winning 90-minute documentary film about the famous 1975 Travis Walton story. She has been an activist in the UFO community for 20 years as a coordinator and founding member of the Mainline UFO, a community of educational service of the Mutual UFO Network in Pennsylvania. I want to get Pennsylvania in there because some people may not know where the Mainline is. Uh, Jennifer serves as a state section director for the Mutual, Mutual, I don't know, I can't say Mutual today, Mutual UFO Network uh, in Pennsylvania. She has published articles and periodicals about the UFO phenomenon, precognition, synchronicity, crop circle phenomena, as well as articles about the Travis Walton story and her documentary, which we will talk about. She has spoken for numerous conferences on UFOs, crop circles, the Travis Walton story, 
and ancient architectural features advanced for their time. Uh, as a young adult, Stein developed a entrepreneurial skill working in a family owned business while earning a Bachelor of Science in Textiles from the University of Arizona in 1983. She is married to her life partner of 40 years and has two adult children in the Philadelphia area of Pennsylvania. The film website to learn more about the Travis Walton documentary film is TravisWaltonTheMovie.com and the T and the W and the T and the M, all the, the, the first letters of each word is capitalized. It's all run together. Uh, TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. Jennifer Stein, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thank you. It's great to be here, Kevin. That was a uh, that was a long thing to uh, get through, and I want to tell you one thing: you misspelled bachelor in your uh, <laughs> in your dyslexic gen. Yeah. In fact, when I was there, they they the dean wanted me to stay on and do a graduate program, and she tested me for dyslexia, and she said, "Do you know you have it?" I said, "I've never even heard of it, and I still can't spell it." <laughs> I am mildly dyslexic myself, but I ignore that because I can't. Uh, let's get right into it. For those of you who may not be overly familiar with the Travis Walton case, um, I will put a link on my blog to my interview with Mike Rogers in the first hour of that interview. He goes through the, the Walton experience from his perspective uh, so you can get a good idea of what happened there. And what what is the point of contention right at this moment here, and we'll get to that, is this claim that Philip Klass had uh, tried to convince one of the people on the, the crew with Walton to uh, tell, tell everybody it was a hoax and he would pay him $10,000. And there's some documentation about that. Um, you and I have talked about that a little bit before we talked a couple of weeks ago about that with Peter Robbins, as a matter of fact. Um, reading over the transcript carefully, and I don't really want to prejudice anybody because I'm going to put the documents up on my blog so they, they can read them themselves and determine whether or not class actually solicited the, the, the admission from Pierce. But what is your take on, on all of that? I believe that he did try to solicit um, Steve Pierce. And through reading through the transcripts, which I, I sent you, it becomes clear to me that class, I mean, this is one of like, you know, there's shelves and shelves of Philip class archives that you can go through. Like there's so many foot, you know, you can call up and they have various sections they discuss. And this is just one of them that I came across in the last, you know, two weeks. I've had them in my files for years, but I haven't always read them all. But it, it appears from my reading of this, that's why I sent it to you to ask you what your opinion was. It appears to me that they're rehashing something they had discussed before in this conversation that class recorded, because he recorded most of his conversations with permission from the people he was, you know, interviewing over the phone, because he wanted to make sure, as he claimed, that he got it right. So, Interestingly enough, I was when I was there reading these archives, I was there with Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin. They came and stayed with me because I live in Philadelphia and the American Philosophical Society, which has classes files, is in Philly. And I would hear Kathy and Stanton talking and they would say, isn't it interesting that in this particular sentence, he writes in parentheses, indescript. 
which means he couldn't make out what the person was saying. So there's this comment that Steve makes in these, in these transcripts that says, you know, uh, it's, they, they think you were messing with me I, or you were indescript with me. And I think that he was suggesting that they had agreed already um, on class offering him $10,000. Now, class had an open you know, a comment all the time he would publish in his uh, in his periodical he wrote for Air. Uh, what was it called? Air and Space Weekly. Uh, oh, air, um, Aviation Week and Space Technology. Thank you. Aviation we called it the Military Aviation Leak. Yeah, Aviation Leak. Yes, because he was known for leaking some stuff too. That's right. Well, not just him, but the whole magazine. Yes. Yes. But we, but we digress. We. That's right. So. In, in this uh, magazine, he often stated he would offer $10,000 to anybody who could provide him, uh, you know, a physical part of a UFO craft. If you can give him physical evidence, he would offer you $10,000. Well, I think, I think what he was saying there was if you could provide definite evidence, regardless of the nature of that evidence, that there was extraterrestrial right. visitation, he would pay $10,000. Right. But it was also in the form of a bet. Which yes. you would wager you would wager one thousand against his ten thousand, and uh, I think uh, Stan Friedman sent him a thousand dollars for to to participate in the wager, and Stan never collected, of course. But that's neither here nor there. I was looking at the transcript, and it says in the transcript, "You and I have never talked before." And in in the very first first. Uh, conversation there. Yes, yes. Suggesting that they had not talked before about any of this stuff, which suggests yes. that it, it's something that arose from others suggesting that. And I think they blame Mike Rogers specifically for kind of um, putting that out into the public arena that Philip Class had tried to get Steve Pierce to um, confess the hoax for $10,000. Yeah, did I send you the page of Class's notes about his conversations with Jim Click and Sank Flake? You sent me six pages of notes, which were transcripts of Philip Class's um, information from uh, the transcripts of his conversations with Steve Pierce. Okay, well, yeah, there's a, a, along with that in that same section. I'll see if I can find it and pull it up. There's this interesting conversation, or there's there's notes from telephone conversations that he's had with Sand Flake and this other uh, police officer named uh, Jim Click. And apparently Jim Click was pretty good family friends with the Pierce family and knew them for a long time. And uh, in those transcripts, it talks about um, pressure to put pressure on. There's discussions about how they would like to see him put pressure on Steve Pierce. So there's an insinuation that this offer or this bribe first came to Steve through Jim Click and Sand Flake. That's what I kind of take from my read on it. But, you know, it's like we're digging through archives, trying to get clarity on it. Now, granted, when I interviewed, I think you've watched my film, when I interviewed Steve Pierce, he clearly said yes uh, to, to my question uh, you know, that he was offered um, a bribe from 
Philip Glass. And Travis tells me that too. Travis said that he learned once Steve moved to Texas, Phil Glass actually flew out there, tracked him down, even though he was operating under a different name. He was using his middle name, Jeff. Class tracked him down, took him out to dinner and offered him a bribe. And this was already like three or four years after the event. Steve gone off and joined the military and then came back and moved to Texas with his wife, Denise. So there was there's sort of like a, a trail of this happening again and again and again. I don't think it was one single time. His class wanted to see this story buried. Well, of course, because that was that was his modus operandi. He was anti-UFO and there could be no alien visitation. Ergo, anything that suggested otherwise must be law. Right. But I think from the transcripts, just from the transcripts that that the conversations that we have between class and Pierce it suggested that they had not communicated prior to that conversation and that the information came from uh, Mike Rogers. I think maybe Travis put it in his book, uh, Fire in the Sky uh, as well, but Pierce denies it, I think, um, categorically in, that conversa in those conversations that, that, he, that there was no real discussion of a bribe. You, you, admit the uh, thing was a hoax and we will pay you $10,000 if we go through the transcripts carefully. And I didn't really want to get into that yeah. too deep because I want the people who uh, visit the blog to read the transcripts themselves without our bias showing through. But I guess your bias is coming through as clear as mine. So, Well, you know, I, I just know people who had long relationships with, with Philip Glass, as you did yourself. You knew oh, him yeah. and had dinner with him many times. And he would often change or turn things or deny things or record conversations and then change them. He seemed to do that for years. I've read years and years of transcripts he had with Mike Rogers. And um, I actually developed a huge amount of respect for Mike unraveling the misconceptions that Phil was trying to catch him in. And uh, it's, it's exhausting to read some of these letters because they go on for literally a decade. And he tried to pin him down on you know, uh, some malpractice with with him, uh, with the Forestry Service that he believed that Mike had, uh, you know, uh, undermined the Forestry Service or had committed a crime and he was still being paid by the Forestry Service for not completing on a project. And uh, none of that really ever panned out. The class could never prove it. And well, it, Bill Class would lead to conclusions but on the other side of the coin, when we when we look at maybe Stan Friedman, we see him doing the same thing, going in the opposite direction. Maybe, maybe, yeah. I, I think there's a push and pull that goes on. And maybe to a certain extent, Kevin, I think that that helps refine and bring out the real true stories. I think that if like Phil hadn't gone after this crew for decades, claiming that their polygraphs weren't you know valid, they wouldn't have taken so many darn polygraphs. It just would have gone you know by the wayside. But because he accused them for decades of not really passing polygraphs, which they actually really did, it ended up that like Travis, I think, has taken six polygraphs now. So it's it's kind of absurd, but it helps refine the details when the details are brought up for uh, skeptical review. Then the facts can really be gone through in detail. And I think that ends up really in the long run, you know, bringing the significance of these stories to the forefront. I certainly think that's true in the Walton case. 
Well, we're gonna have to take a break here. When we come back, I wanna ask you about some of the things in the, in the movie, Travis, which is um, the documentary you did with Travis Walton and a whole bunch of other people, which is kind of interesting. Um, the website is uh, www.travaswaltonthemovie.com and it's all one word and Travis Walton, the movie, of course, is capitalized, is stuck together. And you uh, have a visual, uh, virtual conference coming up on November 6th at um, like, uh, theobservationdk.com. We'll talk about that a little bit later when we come back. Uh, my book, latest book is uh, UFOs in the Deep State, which gives you a different perspective on uh, why the cover-up persists over today. We will be back right after this with Gene Stein, so please stick around. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Back with Gene Stein, we're talking about the Travis Walton deduction, deduction, Travis Walton abduction. I'm getting ahead of myself here. And what's going on in the background, which is kind of interesting, is Jen tells me she's um, texting with Steve Pierce, asking him specifically whether or not um, there was a bribe uh, made. Uh, Jen, go ahead, run with this now. <laughs> Where are no. we in the texting? I, it, he hasn't gotten back to me yet, but I just uh, I just texted him. We've been texting all morning because I was finally able to reach out to him to ask him if he'd like to participate in our event coming up on November 6th. We'd like to get the crew boys together uh, with Travis. We've done every year, we've sort of done what we call a Skyfire Summit. We've done them first in Heber, Arizona in 2014 and 2015. We did some on the West Coast and some on the East Coast. We had some screenings of the documentary. So when I made the documentary, you know, Travis, the true story of Travis Walton, I said to him, look, this is your film. You're one of the producers on it with me. You can screen this film anytime, anywhere, and you should be doing it every year on the anniversary of your event because it helps bring people into awareness about this story. And frankly, I think that the precipice we sit on as human beings recognizing that we are probably not alone in the universe and we know a lot more about that now scientifically than we did in 1975. And when you really begin to grab a hold of that consciously, it's a huge conscious shift for humanity. And while we need to be careful and we need to be skeptical and we need to be 
you know, um, level-headed about this. It's a huge, um, you know, emancipation for humanity to realize, wow, we, there might be intelligent beings out there. The government's admitted, right, Kevin, that there are intelligent craft <laughs> that outmaneuver us, certainly as of June no, they, they haven't admitted that. They have said that the, the videos taken by the Navy are legitimate videos taken by Navy fighter pilots, but they have right. not said they show extraterrestrial craft. They have no, not come out. What they have that. said, what they have said, to be clear, is they could be a threat because they operate with uh, technology we don't have, and they outmaneuver. They, they, they outmaneuver us. They appear intelligent. They don't say they're operated by intelligent beings. They say the craft appear intelligent. So we're not talking about ETs. We're only talking about craft. Well, but the thing is, we go back to 1947 and we have the Twining Letter, which is basically saying the same thing, and we need right. to do that. Now we're 70 years down the road. We haven't we haven't moved an inch off that point. We're not much further along. That's but right. what I wanted to talk about, you know, let's talk a little bit about the movie Travis, okay. which you, you interview, I guess, the surviving members of the, the crew. I think two of them have passed away since, right. like, since the events took place. Mike Rogers is in it, and Steve Pierce is in it, and of course, Travis Walton's in it. But one of the people that was in it that kind of bothered me was Jim Harder. Well, he's long gone. We weren't able yes. to interview him, but we bring up that he did do a regression on Travis. But are you familiar with Harder's background? A little bit, yeah. He's an engineering uh, guy out of, uh, I think, uh, Cal State or Berkeley. Well, what bothered me about that, I worked with him in the mid-1970s on an abduction piece. And at the time, I was very, very young and very impressionable and thought this guy knows what he's doing. But now going back and reviewing the transcripts and reviewing what took place, I could see the way he was manipulating the situation to get the answers he wanted. While that may not have appeared during the hypnotic regression sessions, between those sessions, he would be talking to the witness, the abductee, suggesting things. Um, Harder told me that his, his job was to validate the Barney and Betty Hill case. It wasn't to do scientific research into what's going on. It was to val validate the Barney and Betty Hill case, which is not a very scientific point of view. But what I caught him doing, what I realized he was doing years later, was between the sessions, he would say things to the witness. And in the very next se session, some of that stuff would appear in the hypnotic regression session, which suggested he was a kind of subtly, maybe unconsciously, probably unconsciously implanting in the witness what he wanted to get out of that person during that, uh, that discussion. And so I, I looked at um, other things that he had done and there seemed to be a lack of good scientific methodology in what he was doing. He was looking for specific things and was manipulating the situation to get those sorts of things. Did, well, what, you you may well be right, uh, Kevin. I wasn't, of course, there, and it wasn't my, in many way, my decision to bring him in. It was the, the psychologists, or psychiatrists, actually, Gene and Beryl Rosenbaum, who were recommended by APRO, and the National Enquirer agreed and flew them in, I think, from Denver, and then they recommended someone they knew who had some experience with uh, hypnotic regression because not that many people were specifically trained in that. And as I understand what James did, 
he only had one session with Travis. He didn't have multiple sessions with him. And what he did is he tried to get him into more what I would call a relaxed state of meditation or a more relaxed state where he could discuss it with controlling his breathing and not having a panic attack. Because every time he tried to talk about it with his brother and with other people, he would just go into a catatonic you know, state of, of panic and he had difficulty breathing and he was totally freaked out by what had happened to him. And it was really more like post-traumatic stress he was under. And in order to get him relaxed enough to just describe what had happened, that's why he was regressed. And as I understand it, Gene and um, Beryl were right there in the room when they did it and it was recorded. I heard that it was recorded certainly on tape because Dwayne had a tape recorder there as did the Rosenbaums and so did Harder. So they, there were three or four tape recorders going. There may have also been a camera because there were news people near, uh, you know, in the hotel that weekend in the Sheraton Hotel. It, it, reading the transcripts about all this, it, it's fascinating. It must have been a real fiasco going on there. Well, I think my point is, though, um, not specifically directed at the Walton regression, but the methodology that Harder used it used in the past when when I was working with him. Well, you 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 might well be right. I'm not aware that um, he had a chance to really discuss the regression with Walton because the newspaper was trying to chunk out a story. They had an idea. They want an exclusive on it, right? They made everybody sign non-disclosures that came in there. They wanted him to take a polygraph too, and they had brought in a polygraph expert from Phoenix, uh, John uh, McCarthy, uh, without really, you know. Um, giving him much background, basically that when McCarthy showed up, they handed him a bunch of tapes and said, here, listen to the regression tape, listen to some of these phone calls. We're going to go have lunch. And when we come back, you're going to give Travis a polygraph. I mean, it was pretty rushed and not really thought through, I think. Yeah, I, but I think we're, we're kind of talking at this uh, divergent points here. Which, okay, sorry. Which is, which is simply, which is simply I'm, not, I'm not criticizing the way it was done with Walton. I am merely suggesting that Harder had an agenda and that his agenda is shown in the work that he did. So it's not a, it's not a real scientifically done regressions. When I worked with him, we had, I think, four or five sessions with the, with the witness um, over a period of several days. And Harder was always saying, well, you know, I'm trying to get the person to relax, to remember. To, to provide these memories properly to us. But what I see now in looking back on that and with what I've learned since then by studying psychology and some other things, uh, that it was harder manipulating the situation. As I say, once again, I, I'm not sure that he was doing it purposely or consciously, but he thought it was the, the scientific way of doing it. Uh, and it really wasn't. It was providing information to the witness prior to any real interview or interrogation of the witness. And I know Stan did the same thing. He would find a witness and send him a whole bunch of documentation and everything about UFOs and that sort of thing before he had ever really interviewed them. And we always thought, and I say we, a number of us, had always wondered about the validity of that, providing that sort of information prior to the, the first of the conversations. I have no objection to supplying that information later on, but I see it as sort of contaminating your source before you even get to that point. 
the best example I can give you is Edwin Easley, who was the Provost Marshal in Roswell in 1947. And he got a package of material from Stan Friedman before anybody had talked to him. And uh, Easley didn't open it. He, he, he wrote on it, you know, this is what it is, and I'm not going to look at this stuff. And I, I think I'm the only one ever talked to, to Easley in per, on, per, on purpose. Uh, I'm the only one that ever talked to Easley prior to his untimely death. But I think the point simply is with Harder providing that information up front or between the sessions, it kind of contaminates those sessions and somewhat diminishes the importance of those sessions. If Harder actually had that opportunity with Travis. I'm not, I'm not sure. saying he did with Travis. I'm saying overall, he did have that opportunity with others and he took that opportunity with others. So it diminished, From, in my, my point of view, it diminished his importance as an investigator. I, I can see your point. From reading what went on that weekend and how people flew in and flew out of there and ran around the hotel rooms and actually spent a lot of time in the bar. I heard that the bar bill was very big as well from <laughs> the... Uh, the head of the National Enquirer, who was in Florida at the time, he was like complaining about that. So it was, I think it was a wild weekend that went on there. And I think it was also a very tense weekend. People were very much on edge. Um, and I doubt Harder had the opportunity to discuss anything with Travis. And I think the important thing about Travis's regression to remember and understand, Kevin, is he had complete recall when he woke up on the side of the road outside of Heber. He, he, he woke up, he kind of came to, he saw a light around him. He thought it was possibly a, a, a street lamp, right? And he looked up and saw this craft above him, which then the light closed up, went up into the bottom of the craft and the craft took off and then just left him on the side of the road. And so he thought it was the same day that he had been hit by this beam. He thought it was the same evening. He didn't realize he had a five-day growth of beard yet. He was freaked out, shaking, frightened. Um, but he had recall of what he had experienced. It wasn't like he had needed some kind of regression or hypnosis. It was all right there. And when his brother, Dwayne, picked him up out of that phone booth in Heber, he completely, um, you know, jumped away from him at first because he was still in such post-traumatic stress. He, he uh, had passed out in the phone booth after he'd made a phone call. And he actually didn't call Dwayne. He called Grant and his sister, Grant Neft, I think his name is, who lived not far from Heber because Travis knew where he was and he knew that they lived the closest. All these towns up there are 35, 40 minutes from each other. And Dwayne happened to be staying with them because he'd been part of the search for five days. So, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, Travis had the memories there and he was trying to talk about it, but it upset him so much. So what I understand Harder did is just talked him into a relaxed state. He didn't hypnotize him. He could just talk him down to the point where he could breathe calmly and recount what happened. But once again, I think you've missed my point. Okay. okay. No, I don't think I, I missed your point. Which, which is not other, other programs he had done, other regressions that Harder had done, he led people in different directions. Yes, and I'm not criticizing the Walton story from that point of view or anything that Harder may have said about it. I'm merely suggesting that um, Harder's methodology was not as scientific as it could have been. And I think he was trained as an engineer as opposed to yes. a scientist. Yeah. And when I needed someone for hypnotic regression, I talked to my good friend, Carl Lorenzen, 
And she said, well, let's, let's see if Jim Harder can help you out. And at that time, I was, nobody was involved really in alien abduction research to the level it is That's in right. today's environment. So it was hard to find somebody like That's that. Right. A lot has improved, too, in various sciences, right? Look at polygraphs have changed tremendously in the last 40, 50 years. And so has the understanding of hypnosis and, and regression and meditation. And even our understanding of consciousness has shifted a huge amount. So, yeah, I think they all did the best they could at the time that they could. Yes, yes, but again, my point simply is there was a bias that Harder showed in other investigations, which probably did not impact the, the Walton investigation at all. I just wanted to maybe. point out that Harder maybe. wasn't maybe the I, best source. I, 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 don't, I don't see that, but you can, you know, for sure. Uh, we're going to have to take a break here, and I, I know you want to do that. <laughs> um, so you are... Um, when we come back, I guess is where I'm going with this. When we come back, we'll move on from this discussion into another arena and see if uh, Steve Pierce has uh, communicated with you at all. Um, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. I'll have the transcripts of the Walton Pierce, not the Walton, the, the Pierce class uh, uh, telephone conversations up for you all to take a look at. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. With Jennifer Stein, we were talking about the Steve Pierce, Philip Class bribe in an earlier segment. She has communicated with Steve Pierce about that. Uh, what did you What did you text him, and what did he text back? I just asked him. I said, "Can you confirm again for me that uh, Philip Class offered you a bribe?" And he texted back. Um, Travis can confirm that, and then he said, "Find the cop, Jim Click." Travis found him and it was all true. So I, I know that Travis had follow-up with some of the police in the area. We, we actually had follow-up with um, Marlon Gillespie. We interviewed him and I also interviewed uh, Deputy Ellison too, Chuck Ellison for you know the film that we did. But Steve offered quite clearly when we did the documentary, when I filmed him in 2014 in front of the Holbrook prison, or it's now a museum, but at that point it was the prison and the county seat for the for the jailhouse there. He told me right off that Philip had offered him a bribe. So let's let's recap here because I think I understand where we're going here. We have a transcript from Philip Class with Steve Pierce. In the transcript, it sounds as if Steve Pierce and Philip Class have never spoken to one another, which could possibly which could be true. And in the conversation, it's doesn't really talk about a bribe coming in. They talk about the $10,000 at some point and Mike Rogers' reaction to it and that sort of thing. What we're suggesting now or what you're suggesting now is that Philip Class didn't offer the bribe directly to Steve Pierce, but, but suggested um, Click, I, I forget his first name. Jim Click. Jim Click. And, and Sank, S-A-N-K, Flake. 
Apparently, okay. Jim and Sank were friendly with the Pierce family, and there was communications. There are notes I have here of Class's conversations with them. So Class didn't, didn't offer the bribe directly to Pierce in the beginning. It came through the police officers as a way of, of, of um, applying pressure to Steve Pierce to talk about uh, the whole thing being a hoax. As from Steve, he says, the cop came to my door and tell me that Philip said he'd give me 10,000. That was the first time I'd ever heard the name. I mean, I guess that's Philip Class, that's what he means. Well, to be fair, I did a long blog posting because I had said at some point that Phil Class had a habit of attempting to intimidate people or in today's world, it would be canceled them. Uh, and some of the skeptics objected to that. And I said, well, you know, I've got any number of instances where that happened. And they said, provide us with five. So I did. So this is a long blog posting about the people who had communications with Philip Class. Uh, James McDonald, the atmospheric uh, physicist, had trouble with Class. And Class got his uh, Navy contracts canceled because while class, I'm sorry, while McDonald was in Australia doing work for the Navy, he also used his off time to investigate UFOs and class made it look as if he was using Navy funds to investigate UFOs. And I will say right up front, I was at a um, defense intelligence agency school in Washington, DC and many, many years ago now. Uh, and while there, I used that opportunity to go to the National Archives where the Project Blue Book films were, uh, files were held to review the microfilms. So you could say, well, I was using the Air Force money to investigate UFOs, which I really wasn't. It was after class time, we were on free time. So I was there because of the Air Force, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't using Air Force time to investigate the UFOs. There's a number of other cases uh, in which class did some things like that. I think he suggested at one point, we were all like Nazis because we were criticizing the government as if criticism of the government is something you can't do. And in today's environment, it's something that is applauded. And rightly so, I think that our whole society should be questioning what the government does if we don't like it. Uh, not necessarily burning down cities, but but we should, we should be looking at all of that. So I think that when you look at this whole thing, if you take a look at the transcripts, I think when you read the transcripts coming into them cold, you get the impression that Class and Pierce had never spoken to one another, which may be true, probably is true, but it doesn't mean there wasn't communication of some sort flowing from Class to Pierce. Um, I think that through, might be- Through the local police, yeah. 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 I had actually heard at one point there was a Western Union telegram that came into the police office. And I forget who I heard that from, if it was Gillespie or if it was Travis who mentioned that, but that at one point somebody actually carried a, uh, a bribe or carried a note to Steve Pierce's house. So in talking to Robert Schaefer, and I asked him specifically mm -hmm. about this telegram. He said, no, class never used the telegrams that way. I'm thinking in the mid-1970s, okay. who's using telegrams? Um, a fax, maybe? You know, and- I don't think they had fax machines in 75 and 76. Well, I, yeah, I think, I think they had was, fax 
had tax machines, but I think they were more commercial grade and it wasn't everybody. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, maybe but the police department had one. Yeah. I, I think the police department would have had it and I'm sure Aviation League would have had them. So maybe it, it, right. it, it, it's not outside the realm of possibility, but it's just trying to look at this thing from a, I guess, an objective point of view. Could class have sent a telegram? Probably not. Could he have communicated another to another method? Yeah, that's possible. In today's environment, we have emails. We have to be careful with our emails because something you said in your email 10 years ago might get you fired from the Los Angeles rape, all the Las Vegas rumors. Um, but that's a whole other another story. Um, so it, the other thing that I wanted to, to touch with you is um, Stan Friedman kind of going after class for some of class's activities. Um, I, I'm sure you remember him talking about how class would do the, some of the things we've talked about, you know, try to cancel people in today's environment. And yet uh, Stan had done the same thing. Well, I think Stan was uh, to a certain extent challenged by class. And I think class met his match well with Stan. Stan was a, you know, a, a nuclear physicist. He'd worked on, you know, air and space programs. He'd worked for some of the best high-tech companies at the time. And um, I think he met class's challenge as well. And because he did, we know a lot more about UFOs than we might have otherwise not known. Like what I said I, before, it's a refining process. Well, what, what I'm saying is I, I noticed that Stan Friedman would attack people who disagreed with him, not just still class, but others. Um, and it, it, it was sort of like they're the same personality, but at opposite ends of the spectrum. One was anti-flying saucer and the other was pro-flying saucer, but they used some of the same techniques. I don't think it bothered Stan. I think Stan always took it as a good challenge and it made him a better researcher and a better writer. Um, and it made him appreciate digging into archives and finding stuff he never even expected to find. Um, so- uh, well, I, will, I will say I will say right now that class performed a service to the UFO community by the challenges because we all sure. had to meet those challenges that, that Philip uh, raised on various cases and were able to oftentimes discover where the flaw was in his analysis. Uh, sure. And I, I, I have to confess, Kevin, um, I, I knew Stanton. Stanton was to some extent sort of a mentor uh, for me, but I'm certainly no expert on his writings or his communications back and forth with class. Probably I'm not an expert on anything really, except I dabble in a lot of different things. And I've taken on documentary filmmaking and uh, attempted to do a halfway decent documentary about the Walton case because Prior to that, most people only knew about the Walton case if they'd read his book or they had seen the movie Fire in the Sky, which was a very good film uh, that Paramount did and a very successful film for Paramount, but they did fictionalize some of the parts of the story. And I thought before we were had lost uh, Marlon Gillespie and before we'd lost Cy Gilson, which we now have lost both of them. And I think Chuck Ellison is still with us, but I thought it was important to get the police on camera themselves telling their story, as well as some of the crew members, because we may begin to lose more of them as well. well and first, yeah, for, for the next generation, I think it's important to actually see these people firsthand and hear the story firsthand from the horse's mouth. Well, I was going to say it's a strange coincidence. I had not seen the Fire in the Sky movie and kind of avoided it, as I avoided E.T. and some other movies. But um, after talking to Mike Rogers the first time, 
coincidentally, the, the movie showed up on one of the cable channels, so I watched it. And then I talked, I guess I talked to um, Mike Rogers afterwards. I've seen the movie, jealous because they got to meet James Garner, and I didn't. But they, um, I, th I think they all said that the, the, the material in, inside the craft, uh, for example, was heavily fictionalized. Right. And I think Mike Rogers said that he had timed it all out and Travis may have been conscious for 30 minutes while inside the craft during the five days and that sort of thing. So there was a lot of filler material and things that didn't take place. I also was uh, concerned about the um, antagonism amongst the, the, the crew members. I think uh, what Steve Dallas and Travis Walton were not good friends. And that kind of comes out in the movie. And I asked Mike Rogers about that and said, oh yeah, they were very antagonistic toward one another. So there's points in the movie that are very good, but there's an awful lot of the movie that was fictionalized as Hollywood does with nearly everything. Right, right. Yeah, controversy sells, sells things, right? <laughs> and to a lot of people, honestly, this whole UFO phenomenon is really pure entertainment. It's few people take it very seriously. I think only unless you've actually seen a craft yourself and had the unnerving experience of wondering whether or not you're losing your mind, do you bother to really take it seriously? It's like anything, you know, like you don't take the risk of cancer seriously until you have it, or you don't take the risk of driving seriously until you have a serious accident, you know, or breaking a bone. You know, once you have a life experience, you have a different, uh, taste for that in your life well the thing that bothers me is too many people seem to get their information out of the movies and yes i think when they do a docudrama or they do a historical piece that it's accurate and the one thing that's always bothered me is my mother told me long long ago that george custer was promoted to general by mistake and you watch the movie they died with their boots on you see exactly where that came from and if you read the history, you find out, no, almost everybody that was a graduate of, the, uh, of West Point in that time frame, a legitimate regular army officer during the Civil War ended up as a general officer, simply because they were creating so many um, um, uh, militias, state militias or, or state units from that time that they wanted the regular officers in charge of them. So the, the point simply is that if you watch a movie about something, you get an idea of what's going on, but then you have to do additional research if you're interested in it to find out what um, liberties the movie makers took with that film. And I think that's the difference between a documentary where you're talking to the people and you have an agenda of getting it down right. For the most part, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at your documentary and I, I understand that's exactly where you were going, but some documentaries, the producers, and the directors have an agenda and it comes through. They're either to destroy UFOs or they're uh, completely biased toward UFOs and they don't get a good uh, unbiased objective look at the, at the case. Right, right. And I'm not a documentary expert. You know, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm really just uh, as curious as everyone else, but it, I thought the time had come and come running up to the 40th anniversary of Travis's event, I thought, you know, why not do this? I, I actually had dinner. I'll tell you how the whole, if you'd like to know how the whole uh, documentary off, came about. Let's hold off on that for just a moment because I'm gonna have to take a break. Okay. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this Ryan Gordon guy. Okay. Who, who people have said, why don't you get, your, get him on your show? And I've uh, 
emailed him a number of times and gotten responses from him. And there's a discussion that he said that he couldn't come on the program because of the agreements he had with Travis Walton. We might we should take a look at that when we come back. Uh, before we go away, I'd like to mention once again, uh, my latest book is UFOs in the Deep State. I think it's particularly appropriate today because we have a lot of talk about the shadow governments or how the bureaucrats are not beholden to an administration, but they go from administration to administration to administration. They hold an awful lot of power. And I think in the UFOs in the Deep State, we examine that a little bit and we understand why in today's environment with as sophisticated as we now are, we still have this pressure to keep UFOs in the background. So I will return with Jennifer Stein right after this, so please stick around. I am back with Jen Stein. We've been talking about the Travis Walton case. We've been kind of all over the board, I think. Um, when we went away, I had mentioned Ryan Gordon. And I think it's important that we talk about that. Um, part of all of this came about because Gordon had uh, a long interview with uh, um, another, on another radio show, uh, Erica, somebody whose name escapes me at the moment. And in the course of that, made some allegations about the Walton abduction and things that have been said by other people. So I reached out to Gordon because I wanted to talk to him. And he told me that uh, he had said all he could say on other programs uh, per his agreement with Travis Walton. So uh, he's not coming on the program. And I mentioned all of this because people have said to me, why don't you get Ryan Gordon on your program? And the answer is I've tried, he just won't come on the program. Uh, Jennifer, did you have you had any contact with Gordon or communication with him at all? Nothing direct. No, I've watched uh, some of his programs, not all of them. I mean, they're ungodly long. Some of them are like ridiculously four hours long. And, you know, it's it's like I just don't have that much time to sit there. So if I'm doing laundry or I'm on the treadmill or I'm walking, you know, or something, I'm doing something else, I've let them play sometimes just to kind of be aware of what's going on. There have always been debunkers or disinformants, I, I like to call them, because really what they're doing is they're mixing and matching information or they're trying to come up with new theories that they throw out there. And they're well entitled to do that. But I just think it's uh, they're opportunists. They're looking for a way to make a name for themselves. And their data doesn't really line up. At least it doesn't for me. Uh, he seems to think he's got inside knowledge because he's gone up there and spent a couple days and talked with uh, Mike and talked with uh, Travis. But uh, in my conversations with Travis, and I, I speak with him often because we work back and forth uh, you know I produce DVDs and get them to him and we have you know poster arrangements and things like that and I let him know when the film is next out on another streaming channel and things like that so um, he can be abreast of stuff but Travis says to me uh, Ryan appeared in his life as if he was a filmmaker and then tried to kind of talk to him but he never really set up his camera and interviewed him. They never had any kind of formal contractual relationship back and forth. And then he turns out, you know, looking for a way to kind of 
weasel his way in into some personal conflicts between Mike and uh, and Travis. And it's really kind of sad. And, and that's what I assess from the situation. He's not really putting relevant information up there. And he's taking a lot of old material that class actually worked on. He's digging into old files. You can tell he's looking at the same files I am, you know, and I can see him trying to kind of spin a doubt about Walton, which as I said, he's welcome to do, but it doesn't add up in my book. And most people, like I said before, look at this as entertainment. They don't take it seriously. And I think he's just looking for an opportunity to make a name for himself and maybe to get some ratings on a podcast I think he's taken over. <laughs> well, I, I think the thing um, that struck me, and, and I, I think you mentioned it to Travis as well, is this idea of some kind of a contractual agreement or arrangement between the two of them. Is There's no such agreement. Not that I've seen, no. So when Gordon tells me he can't talk to me because he said everything he can say, because of the uh, agreements he has with Travis Walton, that may not be the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I'm not going to call him a liar, but, and even if he does, it's none of my business, right? But Travis kind of let me, at least told me, he didn't have any kind of contractual relationship with him. And, 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 uh, this Gordon guy, I think is Evan is his name or something. He, he came up with the idea that, uh, or he announced on the show that uh, Travis wouldn't agree to his contract and that he finally had to walk away and he's no longer interested in doing a program. And Travis laughed at that and said, well, he never even came up with a contract for me to even look at. We never talked about money or anything like that. And that's one of the first things I did when I started this uh, arrangement with Travis when I made my documentary I started emailing back and forth and saying what's going to work for you this is what it's going to cost me to do I'll underwrite it I want to make you a co-producer on it I want to do this and that and we were very clear and then I got an entertainment lawyer and you know we were just you know I was always up front there was nothing sort of sneaky behind the back kind of thing and and there were no um in, you know, innuendos that he should do this or I should do that or whatever. It was just, let's be straightforward. So. Well, in the, the world today, I mean, anybody who has a computer and the internet and now a GoPro camera or right. was it your iPhone 27 or whatever, your pro iPhone that has Hollywood quality video capability. That's right. You can, you can do a, a documentary, but. Right. I've worked with a number or had appeared in a number of documentaries and worked with a number of documentarians on these sorts of things. And I know that some of them come in with an agenda uh, and some of them come in wanting to see if they can learn something new and different about a case. And, and, and that's kind of the important thing. When you get into a case like Roswell or you get a case like Travis Walton or uh, Leveland or some of these big name cases, it's always, we, not, we need to find something new and different to make it exciting. And sometimes you can find that thing in the strangest places. In the Leveland case, I found some very interesting things that will be coming out in a book, I think in March, about the Leveland sightings. But uh, you have to dig into it. The other problem is with the internet, you can get so distracted by the misinformation out there and who is reliable and who is not reliable. And that, you know, that's one of the things we try to do here at a different perspective is, is present all sides of the coin in a succinct, succinct way 
so the people can kind of make up their own minds on that. And I got that impression with the Travis Walton documentary, even though I have some criticism about some of the people who participated in it, such as Jim Carter, but, uh, or, or mentions of his, his work, uh, I didn't get a, a real feeling of a bias in that. No, I, I don't think I had a bias. And my goal actually, Kevin, in, in making that was to literally have the people who were involved in it speak for themselves and tell the story. And I didn't appear in it at all, as you noticed. I think maybe my picture was in it once when I was having dinner with uh, Dana and, and his uh, Travis and their son, uh, Cliff or Luke, it was Luke actually, in, uh, right in uh, one of the towns there in Heber. But um, I really felt that if a decent film was done, it might actually be a way to bring the crew together and to bring Mike and Travis together and recognize them for the ridicule they've withstood throughout their life for this and continue as it appears even now, they are continually under the scrutiny of um, accusations and, and ridicule back and forth. I thought that these boys should be recognized for what they withstood, what they saw, what they underwent, what they experienced, and let's let the experience stand for itself. And that's basically what I did. I brought them all back to the forest, um, those that I could, and said, what was your experience like? Um, how did this affect you, did it change you? And what do you wanna share about it? I didn't give them an agenda. I didn't say, oh, look, I'm trying to prove this or that. You can't prove certain aspects of the Walton case, right? The boys did not see him be taken up by this craft, but he seemed to disappear. <laughs> so, you know, and that's another thing that this uh, Evan guy or whatever his name is, he's jumping all over trying to say, well, nobody saw him be abducted. And there's also, you know, my heart goes out to people like Mike Rogers because it, whenever he would go to a conference with Travis, people would say, we don't want to hear from you, Mike. We want to hear from Travis. We want to hear from the guy who actually had this experience with you know, on board a craft. And, and really for many years, it was Mike who was the one who was defending the case, was writing letters, was going back and forth, was appearing on radio shows. And now Mike has sort of had to take a back seat. And I think that that um, has created some hard feelings. And also Travis was the one that wrote the book. Uh, Mike should have written his own book probably because he's certainly well-informed on the subject as, as well as anyone. Um, but when you see the effect this has had on these boys, you can understand why they've gotten into fistfights at times about it. Yeah. And they don't necessarily all get along all the time. And I felt. Wasn't it Buzz Aldrin who got into a fistfight with a guy who said that you were never on the moon? <laughs> and I think Buzz Aldrin punched him in the face, which I don't blame him for doing. <laughs> Sure. I mean, look, even the astronauts went through that kind of ridicule saying, oh, they just took professional photographs. You know, I was good friends with uh, Edgar Mitchell. In fact, Ed wrote me a wonderful um, uh, little promo for the back of the film. I had him review it um, maybe the last year he was alive and he was very pleased with the film and said, Jennifer, good job. He really liked it. But he said, you know, people say I didn't go to the moon because some of the 
the photographs that NASA did were staged photographs and they didn't, they didn't really tell the public that. But he said, I went to the moon. And I believe that he did. I don't think he faked it. And I think most of the astronauts have had in very interesting experiences that they don't talk about. Other, oh. other cosmonauts do, you know, the Russian cosmonauts do and other countries, China's astronauts talk about some odd experiences, seeing stuff they shouldn't be seeing. Well, I think um, we're gonna have to leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> that, that um, I, I think the, the, the lesson for all of us is if you're interested in a topic, don't follow a single path but follow a lot of paths to get to the bottom line. And there's so many sources available to you and you don't have to, you don't have to go outside your living room now to do it with the internet. You just have to be careful with the sources you, you access. Right. And, and, so, and like you, I always encourage people, do your own research. Don't accept what someone else tells you is the truth. Go dig yourself. And there's yeah. lots of ways to do that now. Even more so, it's really at our fingertips if you know how to dig. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer Stein, for taking time with me today. The, um, the, the, the movie, the film is Travis, uh, cleverly called Travis. It's uh, TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. It's the T-W-T-M. They're all capitalized, all one word. You have a virtual conference on November 6th called the observationdk.com. And uh, people can take a look at that website and get the information about how they can participate in that, uh, virtual, that virtual conference. So thank you so much for taking an hour out of your time today and uh, straightening us out on some of this stuff. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, I do need to talk to you a little bit about uh, the next couple of shows here. I think that they're going to be interesting, if I can find my notes, that is. Um, next week, oh, next week we're going to have Nick Redfern on again. He's got a new book out called Time Travel, which is a subject that fascinates me. I've done a number of books about time travel, but they're all science fiction, uh, starting with Remember the Alamo, where uh, oil company sends a squad of mercenaries back to the Alamo in 1836 so the Texans can win the Battle of the Alamo and Matamores becomes part of the, the United States at that time and it spun off into a series where they ended up at the Little Bighorn and uh, um, at Custer's, La Custer's Last Stand and the Civil War. Some interesting stuff there. And then we had on uh, a discussion with Bob Young about the Kecksburg UFO sighting, UFO crash. And I got an email from Stan Gordon about that just the other day. And I invited Gordon on to give his point of view. So I'll have Stan Gordon coming on to kind of talk about uh, Kecksburg and the investigation that he began basically on the night that the whole thing happened. And the witnesses that he uncovered, the people he saw. Um, we can talk about uh, the, the woman, I think her name was Cal. Whose, whose family was involved. We can talk about, um, I think it's John Murphy, who was a reporter that was on the scene that night. And we'll get the perspective from Stan Gordon, who spent a lot of time investigating it. And I said that uh, at the time, I felt a little bit bad about saying that I wasn't a big fan of this UFO crash anymore because some of the things that have come out since then. But we'll have Stan Gordon uh, on as well. And if you get a chance, take a look at Roswell in the 21st century to get a different perspective on that, and uh, Encounter in the Desert, which is the Lonnie Zamora sighting, and I think there's some good information that uh, pops up on there. 
I will tell you there are other fine programs that you can pick up on the paranormal found at xzbn.net. So take a look at the listings there. And you have been watching a different perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. And I'll be back in about 167 hours with more incredible information. So thanks for tuning in.